Hello and welcome to The Yoga Room, a podcast with me, Abby Hoffman. I'm a yoga teacher based in Norwich in the UK and each episode I'll be talking to someone who's rocked my yoga world in one way or another. So grab a chai latte or a double espresso and join us. I'm really excited to welcome my next guest to the Yoga Room podcast. Um, I think he's someone who's contributed in a really significant way to the ongoing conversation about anatomy, the body, and how to have a healthy, sustainable yoga practice. He's taught anatomy and yoga for over 20 years and is an established Ashtanga practitioner and teacher leading workshops and trainings all over the world, as well as producing and hosting online courses and other valuable resources on his website, yogaanatomy.com. So welcome to the Yoga Room podcast, David Kyle. How are you? Hi, Hi Abby. <laughs> it's great to be with you. Thanks for the introduction. Likewise. And where are you speaking to us from? I live in Miami, Florida. Wow. So very different from typically cold a bit overcast June in the UK yes I'm yeah as you know I'm well familiar with the weather in the UK yeah Um, it is definitely different here Um, yeah not always sunshine it it rains yeah this time of year especially we've we've got plenty of rain on it yeah do you kind of have that sort of subtropical heat where it's a bit damp and sort of exactly yeah yeah it's tropical Yeah. yeah yeah Great. Well, I want to talk to you. Um, I think, as we were just saying briefly, we we did meet uh, some twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. I know my, my maths is really out. I was thinking, is it eleven years ago? But no, it's two thousand and three. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about that later. But just tell us about you, how you found yoga, what your sort of journey was from finding yoga, practicing to teaching, all of that stuff. Um. Well. I, I mean, I, I, I always throw this in, although I don't take it too seriously, but, you know, technically my first yoga class was in nursery school with Mrs. Elfenbein um, at a day school, preschool I was going to at the time. Um, I, I don't know that that had any particular impact on the rest of my yoga life, but who knows? So, um, so age, age, what, three, four? Uh, four five yeah right before oh. kindergarten so yeah three four somewhere wow. in that zone yeah. <laughs> I don't rem- I don't remember a lot of it <laughs> I, I remember taking a, a very small like like a welcome mat basically size for the for front door and we had a stack of those and we would go outside onto the grass this I can kind of remember mm. and um I, I particularly I remember butterfly for some reason because you know she was playing with kids but but I I my mother actually stayed friends with her and I met her in her sixties and her seventies and into her eighties. And she actually recently passed away in her nineties. Wow. And practiced yoga into her nineties. Yeah. Actually an amazing woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that's one of the, the sort of things that I want to talk to you about is, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you go on a bit about your journey, but how to practice through our lives <laughs> how to take the practice into our 90s I mean that's my goal definitely yeah yeah it's an important question and and certainly my journey didn't begin and end there with Miss no. <laughs> um <laughs> I I actually I rediscovered yoga 
through um, through my Tai Chi teacher when I was in high school. So this would be 88. Um, I was working in a restaurant. I was cooking. I, I've always worked with my hands. So to me, restaurant work was handwork. Um, and um, yeah, anyway, I don't want to make it too long, but he was, I started doing Tai Chi with him and um, we would practice yoga together as well. Very classical Shivananda style. You know, I read uh, Shivananda Companion to Yoga long before I met Ashtanga. And then I went off to university um, and I actually, you know, shared yoga with a number of friends at the time. You know, I don't, I wouldn't call it teaching per se, but, you know, sharing. Yeah, let's say. Um, and then when I left university, I, 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 were, I was working at a watch manufacturer, but simultaneously going to massage school. Um, and, you know, our, our standards in the state of Florida are quite, quite strong in terms of licensure. Uh, so there was a lot of anatomy. This is just where I got introduced to it. Anatomy in a very formal way. I, I, I had, you know, dip my toe in various places as you do as a yoga person, as somebody who does Tai Chi, you, you're interested in the body and you somehow end up learning some anatomy. Um, and um, yeah, I, I started teaching classes at the, at the massage school actually. And then it ended up that one of the students, I was covering a class for another teacher when I was teaching kinesiology, meaning in, in this context is the study of muscles their attachments, their actions, not applied kinesiology, which is different, but related mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was an Ashtanga practitioner. She was taking the kinesiology course in order to learn her anatomy for her yoga teaching. And long story short, she's who introduced me to Ashtanga and really kind of that changed the trajectory of what I was doing. At that point, I was doing chronic pain work. I was, you know, already treating people. Mm -hmm. um, but then it started to switch into, she's, she actually set up the first anatomy workshop for yogis here in Miami, which was quite oh, successful. Wow. And yeah, and that would have been, you know, that would have been 98, 99, something yeah. like that. Yeah, that, that's about right. I mean, I, I only really started practicing Ashtanga in 97. So that, that kind of fits into the, the, the mm. evolution uh, at least on your side of the pond <laughs> wow um yeah so again kind of truncating things slightly you know you've really delved into and and enlightened I would say the yoga community particularly around injury um mm. so I want to I want to take you back a bit to the article that you wrote I think it was 2014 um, and I think you did a survey as well, uh, but it was yeah. off the back of that William Broad article. Do you remember that? Where, of course. And the book, the subsequent book. Um, so yeah, maybe talk, talk to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the articles came out and of course, you know, they were clickbait written kind of things, um, which always kind of rubs me the wrong way. I, I've read the book. That William Broad, the book is actually excellent and yeah. Um, yeah. frames things and contextualizes, you know, even some of the statements that were in that article. But, you know, it was an unfortunate sort of, it was, it was kind of a, and I think this happens a lot where 
you know, we start talking about injuries that have happened in yoga, and then somehow we make some illogical leap to assume that this is happening all the time in yoga. Yeah. You know, if, if, if my memory serves me, I haven't gone back to look at the article, but, you know, they talk about somebody, I don't know, passing out and getting injured in a headstand, let's say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just think in your own experience, how many classes you've been to, and not just you, but everybody who's listening right now, how many yoga classes you've been to or taught and how many people have you ever seen pass out from doing headstand? None. I've never seen it in my life. I, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Sure. But, you know, and just using this as an example, we, all should, we also should not make um, the invalid leap that that's happening all the time. And therefore, we should be scared of doing headstand. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to come to that as well, talking about perhaps some of the myths in yoga practice that we subsequently exploded maybe but but yeah I mean this whole thing as well that you did talk about the yoga experiment you know the the way in which suddenly so many people were practicing and presumably that also was, was sort of precipitating the you know the injury boom that someone like William Broad was talking about um so yeah what, what's your take on that now like are, are we still in the yoga experiment yeah, we're still in the yoga experiment. I, I don't, I'm not sure it's ever going to end. <laughs> um, I, you know, the, the survey that you reference, you know, what, what happened off the back of that, it, I was having a conversation with a friend in North Carolina uh, named Franz Lavich. And we were, we were talking about, I can't remember the name of the guy at this moment. Um, I'm not even going to try, but <laughs> he, was, he, he had done a bunch of, uh, collected a bunch of data and research related to the next generation at that time being the millennials and what's going on and what you know what are their beliefs and all of this kind of stuff and he had done it on other generations as well and it kind of brought us to this place where I, I was kind of upset around a lot of the stuff going on around injuries and I'm like you know they're plucking these things out of context what is the context is it you know maybe it's related to uh prior injury or an underlying condition or the situation in the room or the condition in the room is it hot is it cold is it winter is it summer is it i mean there's a million of variables and so we we set up a um a survey that i ran on yoga anatomy and you know long story short of course injuries happen when you do any type of physical activity yeah and yeah. you know so we looked up you know a lot of the data around injuries in activities is based on number of hours of activity, like th per thousand hours is how they kind of rate it. Like how many injuries per thousand hours? Mm -hmm. Yoga, as it turns out, is at the bottom. At the, it's like very low relative to basketball, running, cycling, <laughs> you know, dance, yep, yep. CrossFit, yep. you know, all kinds of, which we should expect we should be towards the bottom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, th I think there's something maybe that people have in their minds that, you know, yoga is a healing practice and that you shouldn't get injured and that you're just there to heal the body. And, and so when you come into a dynamic physical practice like Ashtanga, then yeah, of course, you know, and you're going to do it day after day after day or practice in a, you know, maybe in not such a beneficial way for your body. Yeah, things are going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think what's happened also is 
of course, there are health benefits, but people forget that, that that's a side benefit in terms of the intention of practice. And it has become in the for it has like sort of come to the forefront as a thing to do. And to be fair, it works that way as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's not necessarily the, uh, let's say the original intention of, of doing practice. And so we start to get, you know, hung up in like, oh, the, as you were saying, you know, it's like, oh, how do we make it safe? What is safe? Yeah. Because, you know, it's like, discounting or not factoring in all of these potential pre-existing conditions or other activities that people are doing that are putting them in a position where a very minor thing in yoga could trigger something, you know, and again, this doesn't happen all the time, but safe is like this relative to something else type of word. Um, yeah, I also wanted to ask you, get your take on the, the yoga community does seem to self-select in some ways from the hypermobile community, which yeah. I know is a relatively small strata of the population. I think it's something like 20%. But that I read recently that there's actually a much larger percent of yoga teachers, particularly that are on the hypermobile spectrum, something like 80% or maybe 50%. I don't know. Have to check it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a reasonable you know thing to say that you know flexible people might be attracted to yoga when yeah. that's also not the purpose. No, but I think in terms of hypermobility and where a mm. lot of people sit on that spectrum, that there is the propensity, I would say, to to be more uh, susceptible to to injury when ligaments particularly relax and when you know there are other systemic things going on and I just wonder if that contributes it's definitely a factor mm. and you know it's I'm, I'm running an online program at the moment and I started yeah. it off with talking about dialectical thinking what which one of the just to simplify it not to get too deep mm. into it but you know it's and versus or and everybody likes things to be black and white. Oh, it's hypermobility. That's the problem. Are you going to create too much hypermobility? That's the problem. But it's not that. It's, you know, hypermobility and a lack of stability to go with that flexibility, let's say, you know, and that's not, you know, to exclude people who are hypermobile and the struggles that they go through to create stability and strength or that they are more prone. It doesn't change that, but everything is about balance yeah. in, in some sense in the body. And that point of balance, you know, changes over time. It's yeah. not static. Yeah. And, and it comes back to, you know, good old stirum stukum asanam. <laughs> it's that, <laughs> that idea of, of having, yeah, a rounded practice, but being, being steady and comfortable throughout it. I mean, I, I don't know if that if I've ever managed, that. <laughs> I think I'm always too much on one side. I'm either too comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, that's great. I want to probably come back to talking about injuries, but going into teaching anatomy and anatomy in general, like going back to when I first encountered yoga and got into teacher training or actually even before there wasn't this, um, boom in looking at the body so much. I mean, on my 
initial teacher training, it was very much, these are the muscles, these are the bones, go away and learn them. There was not that kind of connection with the moving body so much. And mm. how, how has that evolved, do you think? Um, why? Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I don't, you know, profess to have the answer to that question. <laughs> sure. um, but, you know, like when we talked about the yoga experiment, there's naturally now a maturation of those who there's, you know, there's a generation before us, you know, where, yeah. you know, they went to India early on in the seventies or eighties yeah. or even, you know, and then, you know, they pass it on, they've matured, you know, we've been in it for 20 something years, we've yeah. matured. And I think what happens over time is, you know, we get more interested. Why? You know, <laughs> hopefully asking that question, why, you know, not always, <laughs> not necessarily at the right time, but at some point we often ask, you know, well, why do I keep seeing these things happening? You know, is it to do with the person's anatomy? You know, because this is usually where the, the intersection starts to happen around either injuries or inability to do something that huh. you start to become anatomically curious. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. And it starts a process of investigation, kind of dipping away into anatomy, and then it becomes enough of a piece of information that you realize that actually um, maybe there's something here that is going to continue to support my practice or my teaching. And it just keeps maturing that way with more and more people. But that's my sense of it. Yeah. Um, and what about you? Do you? Are you someone that, you know, likes to just be a lifelong student, keep learning? I imagine the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, yeah, of course, there's, there's always something to learn. Um, but there's also, you know, the learning doesn't have to be outward in sure. terms of seeking more and more and more information and never getting to the end of that, because that is never ending, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's a rabbit hole. Um, yeah. I'm not saying to not do that, or that I don't, or that I don't read articles that come out, particularly scientific ones related to yoga these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, a lot of the work is, there's also a refinement of the information, of the understanding of the information that kind of gets me a little bit more excited or interested. It's like, how, 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 can, I, how can I convey this idea or principle more simply or more straightforward? Or have I had a realization about some interrelationship whether it be anatomical or anatomy related to yoga or something like that. So I think there's kind of like growth in a couple of directions yeah. there. Uh, a lot of people like yourself who are kind of like really established and deep into, you know, the study and, and teaching of anatomy kind of go down that route of, you know, doing dissections and stuff. Have you ever done that? Um, I've, I've not done dissection. It's been on my, my list for a long time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't worked out for me to right. be able to do it at the right time. And I'm always traveling to teach. It's, you know, hard to make that space and it's quite the commitment. Yeah. I mean, what's the process? Well. Do you just like ring up the hospital and go, Hey, I'm an anatomy guy. I, <laughs> I want to dissect. I don't recommend that. Um, <laughs> uh, 
No, there's there's people who are leading them. Um, Tom Myers works with somebody, for instance, who who does anatomy dissection. He actually, um, this might actually be the way in which I end up doing it. They're they're doing it live on video, wow. and yeah, they're doing some really fantastic stuff that way, which makes it a little bit more accessible. Um, still expensive, but accessible from a time commitment uh, um, perspective. Wow, yeah. Just just for clarity and for anyone who's not sure, Tom Myers, um, just just talk a bit about him because he's also a very kind of key person in all of the, the sort of anatomy world. Yeah, um, and I have to say, you know, Tom Myers was an early inspiration for me as well. I was reading um, articles he was writing in the uh, massage magazines here in the States. Uh, they might've been in the UK as well. Um, at that time, I don't know. Uh, but either way, um, he was, yeah, and it was like before his, you know, his big reveal was anatomy trains and this interconnectivity of the fascia through the body, through lines of connective tissue, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, Tom, Tom is a pioneer, a pioneer in explaining anatomy in a completely different way than the tip typical Cartesian method of breaking things down and, you know, tossing out the connective tissue in order to get to the important stuff. You know, he, he yeah, he was, yeah, he's a pioneer. Not, nothing else yeah. to say. It, a great book. Not the easiest read, but a very good book for movement practitioners, um, especially teachers. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a link to it in the show notes because, yeah, I, cool. I agree. Um, okay, so... Yeah, this kind of opening up this expansion of inquiry, um, you know, into the body, into the interrelatedness and the connections to yoga. How do you think what what's the impact of that been in the yoga community, in the teaching community? Has it made teaching better? Do you think? Leading <laughs> <laughs> um, question. I, I think it has, you know. Uh, I'm going to go with Anne's here. It has made some teaching better, and it has also um, probably allowed some people to throw around anatomical words in a way that doesn't make any sense to somebody who really knows their anatomy. Um, so, you know, I don't. I, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, actually, one of my pet bugbears as a student myself when I'm in a class is when a teacher kind of does a few cues and instructions and litters it with all of the stuff that's going on, like this is your thing connecting to your other thing. And if, yeah, do you know what I mean? That's I, yes. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Um, as an anatomy teacher, I mean, unless I know the student knows their anatomy, I don't speak in anatomical terminology to most people you know why because the whole goal in my mind of teaching is well not the whole goal but one of the main goals is that the student understand what it is you're saying to them and can utilize it and so you know it has also it's created this sort of place for i don't want to say they're I'm, I'm trying not to be too negative on it, um, but it can almost become a place to hide behind. Oh, you know, like this veil of, I know what I'm talking about because I can use anatomical words. I'm not saying everybody who uses anatomical words is doing that, but 
it can be overused and it's not necessary in the context and for this it depends on the on the, the student base you have that's yeah. all yeah I agree I, I agree I think some teachers or some people yeah I like that kind of safety of like well this you know I learned this it must be right it's going to help other people but yeah I guess the the evolution of your of teaching practices when you can convey those things even without words I guess and we're yes. going to come come to adjustments which I do really want to <laughs> talk about but um, mm, first of all mm. I, I what I'm absolutely blown away by and I and I've felt like this for ages looking at your website and I get your newsletter I have done for years um, is how your online space has evolved your online content because I think if correct me if I'm wrong you know you've been doing this a while and also I don't know if you if you listened in I, I interviewed Hayley Winter from Yoga Sports Science and she's been delivering online training for a decade so another pioneer but yeah talk, talk to me about the the website um well I mean the website has certainly been an evolution um you know I, I started I started it myself literally um building it, designing it. I mean, going back, you know, into the late nineties. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> so we won't uh, get into the tools that were involved. In doing oh yes. Let, let's, let's go down memory lane just for a moment. So were you using stuff like Dreamweaver? I remember that was one. one. I was using Dreamweaver. <laughs> I was using, I was using Photoshop to slice up uh, design and bring it into uh, tables and uh, cells and all this craziness uh, in Dreamweaver. Uh, uh, yeah, I can see it's causing you some pain. It's distressful <laughs> to think about it. Um, but I, 2000, you know, when I, I mean, my first sort of, I'll say product was, you know, my Yoga Anatomy video, which is back in the day. Um, I still have DVDs, which I feel horrible about at this point um well i'm not what, sure what to do with that i just oh as, it, as in what you're gonna do with them yeah yeah what am i yeah, gonna yeah. do with them nobody wants to buy dvds anymore and i don't blame them i don't know i have the fondness i i've got a whole pile of you know every single film dvd and lots of practice <laughs> stuff and i i kind of time to time i think of taking them to the charity shop but then i think what happens if the internet goes down david what happens then? We have to go analog again, and then they'll be all our DVDs. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a DVD player, so oh, I'm I can, kind of I, stuck. I'll send you one for your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> you get a little one. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so going back. with that. Yeah, yeah it started yeah. with the DVDs, um, and I would sell the DVDs online, and then, you know, um, I started to do the online course stuff, that's that's not quite as long ago the book came out even before that and then that was selling on the website and so it's been this evolution and then it was like I don't want to print DVDs it was a conscious effort like I don't want to do it so I'm going to start doing online courses and this is long before COVID and you know, <laughs> the big movement yeah I, I'm I had no particular insight into it it's just what I wanted to do it's you know I'm I'm an educator I think of myself that way. I mean, it's a lot of my personal work and refinement is about um, how do I deliver anatomy in a simple and understandable way so that one, it's accessible to people and two, it's useful to them. Like it changes something, it helps them in some way, whether that be getting out of pain or allowing them to do something that they couldn't do before. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, now it's a whole proliferation of online offerings and particularly anatomy for teacher training courses. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I was looking at your adjustment course. Um, I may even purchase it because it's very reasonable. <laughs> it's very reasonably priced. It's very reasonable. That, yeah. yeah, that was a fun um, video shoot to do. That was, you know, a crew of eight and um, uh, a cast, so to speak, of <laughs> I think six of us, different students, and it, yeah. it was it was quite the production. Yeah, and forty-five poses you managed to knock out. Uh, that's stunning. Forty-five. Knock them out. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah, I'm going to buy it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just touching on briefly this, this sort of digital space and how yoga seems to have flourished in it. And yes, certainly pre-pandemic, that was the thing. Um, mm. Pitfalls, advantages, you know, could you see yourself being completely online or do you value the, the you know, the nuts and bolts, the, the skin and bones, if mm. you forgive the pun? Uh, of, t of teaching in person? Um, I think both have pros and cons. Mm -hmm. um, I think this has been borne out. I mean, most people find access accessibility or ease of accessibility of yoga classes now to be quite high, mm. um, which is good. And of course, it means the cost has reduced because you don't have to travel anywhere. You don't have to, you know, get a hotel room or whatever. So there's a, you don't fly anywhere or get on a train as the case mm. may be. So there's a reduced cost and ease to accessibility that happens. Of course, what suffers is, you know, the sense of community or the interactivity between two human beings. So, I mean, I just came back from Europe in a three week trip and it felt so good to be in the room with people. Um, having the interaction, seeing the body language, you know, not just a face or a head and shoulders on the screen, um, or, you know, watching a practice through a screen is, you know, it is doable, but it's not the same, right? You can get a lot of good stuff done, but it's not the same. No. So, no. so yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I would ever be a hundred percent online. I, I mean, I, I thrive on the interaction with students and that's because that's where I learn as well. It's like, you know, this constant sort of adding information into my, you know, my brain, my database, and that all kind of swims around and, you know, creates ideas or thoughts or connections or, you know, puts together information in new ways that I haven't considered before. So yeah, I, I need yeah. it. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah. Just quickly, lastly on this, what, what, your 3D muscle lab, talk us through that, because that's something that I briefly um, had a little foray into digital marketing, and I was working with Guy and the team mm. at Wild Heart Media, yeah. who I know have, have kind of helped a lot with your website, where you've worked with them. Um, yeah, and the 3D muscle lab was a sort of uh, seed at that point, I think. Yeah. Um, well, 3D Muscle Lab was, I, I have always wanted, I, I taught kinesiology in massage school for three and a half years. I, I thought I had gotten pretty good at teaching kinesiology. It's not an easy subject to learn, mm -hmm. you know, and like I said already, my mission is to make anatomy simple, understandable, and accessible to the average person. Um, and that's what I was forced to do when I taught it in massage school. You know, these were people who were walking in, you know, they didn't know anatomy. 
and they're going to memorize muscle names, locations, actions, much less how to find it on a human being and test for it and make sure you're on it, all of that kind of stuff. So I kind of had always had this little dream that I was going to do an online kinesiology course. I, I mean, I probably started that. My first conversation with the 3D animator was 14 years ago, probably. But the cost of having 3D animations of a human body with muscles contracting is steep. So I had to wait. I had to wait. I'd save my money, you know. So anyway, I finally did it. We finally got it done. It was a beast and very, very, very expensive to do. I'm glad it's done. I'm glad I did it. Um, it's been very useful. I've gotten great emails from people who have passed their massage exams, you know, their national massage exams because they, you know, studied the muscles on the website. And, you know, that's what makes it worth it for me is to help people. So it's about learning muscles, location. And just to say, you know, that's like, it's foundational information. It's like to have easy access to what muscles are located where, what joint they cross, what happens when they contract or get long, how it affects the joint. And being able to visualize this on the fly has been, you know, fundamental to my understanding of somebody's yoga practice. It's not the end of the journey, it's foundational. Then you got to lay your principles on top of that. And then you have to see interactions between multiple muscles simultaneously going on, right? And it starts to get more complex, but you can't really understand that complexity without sort of understanding that, that foundational layer of information, I, I think, or at least that's how it's worked for me. Well, that's really interesting. And, and that foundational information is where I want to kind of head next, because I met you in 2003. Um, this is before I did any formal teacher training. And I was on one of John Scott, um, Ashtanga mm -hmm. teacher, John Scott's first, I guess it was a teacher training, but he didn't bill it as that. It was a sort of intensive and you were teaching and asked me on it. And yeah. that was my foundational um, <laughs> route into learning about the body. Yeah. I think it called those techniques of teaching. Weeks. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, held in the most beautiful house out of a <laughs> Daphne du Maurier novel. In fact, it, I think it probably was. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure it had some connection to either Rebecca or one of them. But yes, it was a beautiful week we all spent. Um, and I learned an awful lot. I've still got all my notes in, wow. a, note, in a notebook. Yeah, from that time. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, Ashtanga, let's talk about that because I think we're on the same page or in the same era. I, I, that was my real route into yoga, although I had done some before half the classes, Iyengar classes, but that was the time, wasn't it? 90s, late 90s. Um, and at that time, no yoga teacher training, not that I knew about. I just went to class and a, a few of my friends were sort of going off to India or being apprentice. And, you know, how was it for you at, at that time too? Um, by the time I had met you in 2003, I had done David Swenson's teacher training. Of ah, course. Of course. <laughs> I, I didn't do it to, to be a teacher as much as to, you know, learn the practice more fully. Yeah. To be, yeah. to be honest. Uh, but yeah, no, their teacher trainings were not 
quite the thing they are today. No. Um, yeah, which, you know, it's just the natural evolution of the um, experiment yeah. that's going on, yeah. really. Yeah, the experiment. So, yeah, early on in the experiments, um, you know, Ashtanga was, well, how was it? I mean, let's talk about it, what it was like then, now, how it's evolved. Um, I think it's, um, I think it was a, it was certainly more rigid. You know, the rules, there were less people doing it. So I think, you know, the rules were a little bit more firmly ingrained and embraced. Um, those rules, you know, which could change at a moment's notice, of course. Um, you know, they, there was, yeah, you know, I, I think they were also often contextualized because the generation that was actually teaching then were, were people who had been at doing the practice for quite a long while. Um, where I think now we have people teaching the practice with less experience, let's say, than what we got from the people who were like John Scott, for instance, just to use one example, but men, there's many others. Um, so there's been that sort of shift. It was like, you know, they knew the rules. That was the ideal. We're going to keep working towards that. But there was always a little bit of flexibility in there to adapt to the individual. And then there was this period with people with less experience where they didn't feel comfortable doing any of that adaptation because the rules are the rules. And I think that's more of an experience thing than it was that anything in particular had changed out of, let's say, Mysore. I don't think anything had changed, really. There was just the same amount of confusion about what the rules were. Um, I think it became a little dogmatic resting back on the lack of long-term experience. I'm not saying they shouldn't have been teaching, but I'm just saying that, you know, most people, when you practice long enough, you realize you need to change things to adapt to the individual students, which by the way, is exactly what happened in Mysore. Every single year I went there and observed Sharat and Patabi Joyce teaching. They would adapt to individuals all the time. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and I know you know you've spoken about this a lot. Uh, you know, I've listened to interviews with you, but the Mysore practice, the Mysore style, self practice. I mean, to me, and I'm sure to you, this feels like the way to learn yoga, slowly, one pose at a time, at the pace that you're comfortable with. So, yeah. Talk a bit about my Mysore and how you how you teach it. I, I agree completely. Um, we we definitely are biased because we learn that way. Mm. It's not to say somebody can't learn in a lead class type of situation, of course, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I always describe it as you know, it's a private yoga class in a group setting, and that is exactly what it is. If people come in with you know an empty cup. <laughs> you know, empty enough anyway, or openness enough to learn. And, you know, even still, I mean, I just taught in Amsterdam and there was a student that showed up, had never been to a Mysore class before, had only done, had learned, you know, most of primary on video, you know, and it was on YouTube and whatnot. And, you know, of course it was a lot of cleanup because he had not had any objective feedback on anything but I've had complete beginners, never done yoga before, still 
on occasion show up to a week of Mysore that I run and, and I, I, I absolutely love it. I, and yeah. I thank them for showing up all yeah. the time because <laughs> um, they remind me what it's like to be a total beginner again. And I, I even tell them that, you know, as ridiculous as everything looks around you right now and how it looks like they all know what they're doing and you don't know what you're doing, they're going to be the person who reminds them where they started and is going to inspire them. Absolutely. And I, I remember very early on when I first started going to Ashtanga Yoga London, which is where I, I, I guess I, I learned, you know, properly. Um, I'm feeling so scared. Like, I don't know the sequence, but then I'd look to my right and there'd be someone like one pose on for me and I get, okay, yeah. So, so there's like a safety net, isn't there? In, and, and community in that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's a shared sense of direction and purpose. And um, yeah, if, if people surrender into that, you know, it can be very powerful and transformative. You know, I, I love it. I, you know, I, I model, you know, I model my choice of teaching after John Scott, who modeled his choice of teaching after Patabi Joyce. And he always wanted people to have a similar experience to what he had when he was in Mysore, which was, you know, 10 students or 12 students um, with the teacher at one time. And so that's, I mean, I've taught lead classes and I've taught in studios, but for the most part, I, I, I haven't in the last 15, 20, you know, two 20 years, but the first few years I did quite a bit of that. Um, and I, I do the same thing. I, I don't really want a Mysore group of 30 people. It's not, it doesn't interest me. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. Uh, but I tend to want to get involved in people's practice a little bit more and want to be able to kind of hold hold space for them as an individual rather than um, just somebody who's in the group. Yeah. So I, I prefer to do three groups of 12 rather than one group of 36, for instance. Yeah, totally. Um, let's talk a bit about adjustments because, you know, again, the, the Ashtanga practice adjustment is a big part of the learning um, and a big part of the teacher-student relationship I guess so where do they come from like what's the history of these adjustments <laughs> did David Svensson make them up uh no, <laughs> no. I, I mean I, he I'm sure he has invented some you know made choices ab mm. about adjusting something that nobody has ever done before him um, but they, you know, they came out of Mysore. They came out mm -hmm. of uh, observing Patabi Joyce. And I, I'll never forget, I mean, when I first met John um, and he told me, you need to go to Mysore and, you know, you need to meet Patabi Joyce. He's like, when you go, watch, 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 watch what he does, watch how he teaches. That was like the directive I was given. Um, and that's what I did. And I watched him adjust different students in different ways in the same posture based on what, based on how they were doing it and what they were doing. So, you know, it's, I know adjustments have become more controversial. Yeah. It's, I understand why, but, you know, once again, um, of course people have been injured during adjustments, hands-on adjustments. Yeah. People have been, I've seen people injured based on a verbal cue they were given. Sure. Now that probably happens a little less often, 
you know, and I talk about this a lot in workshops. It's, you know, a lot of people take the approach of trying to fix things that are wrong. That's, mm. that's how they approach verbal cues and adjustments, you know, to, to put those in, in, in the same category, really. They're two different ways of doing it. Um, you know, and I kind of take the approach, you know, there's, there's really, there's nothing to fix per se, mm. you know, because it, it, that implies that there's a right way and a wrong way. If you do it this way, that's wrong. If I just do this, then it's going to be right. But it's always in flux. It's never mm. fixed finished, finalized, or over. And so, you know, I think about adjustments as either teaching a process of doing something connected to a larger process, in this case, you know, let's say the sequence. So sometimes the pose has its own process of development. And of course, we all know what the end result is, is trying to be. And so the adjustments are a nudge in that direction. What is the very next step what is the thing that this person can grab onto and change right now that moves them in that direction? What, and to me, that's it. That's the verb. I mean, there's always the, the small adjustments like, oh, turn your foot more this way or what. Those are, you know, minor things to change. Mm -hmm. And I guess also, and tell me if this is your experience that, you know, you don't jump in and with a student you don't know and get right in there with a big, deep press on the back you know you work with them over time <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend that no <laughs> but I have seen it I mean I have seen people get yeah. right in there it's not an approach I would take but in these times I mean we, we are in considerably different times due to COVID and due to other kinds of anxieties I guess around touch than we were 20 years ago so yeah I mean is it still safe? Are we okay? <laughs> How do we approach adjustments safely? I mean, I think, you know, the look, somebody, somebody can definitely get injured from you putting your hands on them and adjusting their body. There's no question about it. Um, it's a, on a functional level, an adjustment is a conversation. Yeah. It's not an imposition. It's a, it's, it, it might start as you trying to do some, or enter some type of information into their body, into their nervous system. Mm. And, you know, I, I talk about this because I, I love using my hands in my mind. Anyway, I am putting information into the nervous system about how to be or move or get somewhere. Like that's how I think about it. But that is contained inside of, let's say, student-teacher relationship, which is different with every student to teacher. There's a dynamic there that cannot be um, dismissed um, and, it, and can be abused, of course. Um, but if it's not, it can be incredibly um, powerful and transformative for both people. It can be extremely helpful. And I think, you know, that, that power dynamic, depending on how that's set up, that is more likely to be the problem than let's say the adjustment itself. Like if you're, um, 
if you're perceived by the student as, you know, a, an abusive teacher, it doesn't really matter whether you put your hands on them or not. It's an abusive power dynamic, let's say. Yeah. And, you know, even when it comes up around trauma, first of all, everybody has had some level of trauma in their life. That, that goes without saying. Of course, people who are highly traumatized, you know, on, on the sort of, I don't know, let's say the top end of that spectrum, um, may or may not even show up to a class. And if they do, then the dynamic is what is going to trigger or not trigger how you respond to their requests or decisions to be touched or not be touched is much more important whether almost than whether you touch them or not. Like if there hasn't been a conversation around it and you don't know, and let's say they've been abused or something like that, if the dynamic in the room that you've created is one of, um, helpfulness and curiosity and openness and I don't know whatever other words we want to throw on it rather than only disciplinarian there's only one way to do this etc cetera, etc cetera. that person may not be triggered at all by having their their body touched in some way or being told something in some way whereas if they go to another class with a teacher that is you know in a different holding a different dynamic they might be triggered from the first word sure so it's something, it's an and, it's not an or. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like yeah. all of these things add up and are important, not any one thing. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's really, really important. I think when we're talking about Ashtanga, when we're talking about any yoga class, but how important the container is, how important the teacher's oh. ability to provide that container and the space within it. Um, yeah, and I personally, I feel, you know, I'm a learner who likes to learn physically by being touched or by, you know, repeating a movement, that kind of kinesthetic learning. And I think that's so important for so many people that mm. that's how they learn through the body, through touch. Yeah. It's an important method of teaching. It's not the only one, of course, no. but it is very useful. I want to ask you again another question how and relating it to ashtanga because ashtanga is a sequence it's a set sequence and you know all the postures are practiced in the same order over and over again and there's a group of postures i guess in the primary series that i've always called the difficult bit in the middle <laughs> and they are some extreme positions that you know i'm thinking about supta kamasana with the legs over the head and then later in the second series the leg behind the head poses but how do we practice these poses safely or maybe another way of looking at it is yeah can everyone practice these poses um i mean there's always exceptions perhaps to people who can practice or should i i guess is the right word um you know there's there could always be some type of existing injury or problem that I, I hate to say that it precludes them from ever doing it, but, you know, it might slow down progress, you know, or yeah, it can bring up more questions about mm. whether this is actually good for the person or not. Mm. Um, you know, Kormasana, Supta Kormasana are extremely deep forward bends. Um, I, you know, 
I think everybody can approach them. And I think what happens is when you get to these more difficult postures is it's, it's even more important to look at the individual, look at how their body is put together, how it functions, what their strengths or weaknesses or flexibilities or tightnesses, et cetera, are, and then figure out what the path is for this person to move in the direction of being able to do it and respond to whatever arises when it arises based on that person's experience. Because personally, I believe these to be important postures in, in a sort of, in, in the developmental process. Now forget the process of the individual pose, but the process of the sequence and how that sequence lives with another sequence that's coming as you alluded to and the one mm -hmm. after that, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm always kind of like looking at the micro, what's going on in this moment with this person, what's the pattern that needs to be tweaked or adjusted to move them towards this idealized version of this posture. And how does this live in the larger context of what the sequence is trying to do and the sequence beyond that? And I think, I think that kind of change in perspective from micro to macro um, helps me find a way for everybody to be able to do something with that posture, let's say. And we just chose one, but I, I know that you're talking about that whole group. But mm -hmm. all of them have a, have a process that is individual <laughs> and similar often to other people. So it's not like you don't use information from somebody else, but um, you have to be, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, ready to adapt and change to the individual yeah. in front of you. That's all. And you, you spoke earlier about that kind of early way of teaching that was quite strict and rigid. Would you still say to someone, well, you, you look, you're not binding in one of the twists, Marachasana D, so you, you're not going to go on. Is that still a thing? Is that something that you kind of encourage or not? Um, well, I'm typically dropping into people's practices. So it's a little bit different for me. It's like if they've already been taken beyond that point, you know, I'm not trying to come in and be the person to lay down the law or the rule of law and say exactly that. No, absolutely not. Take things away. Um, I often say to people, of course, you know, if I see you doing something ridiculous, I'll let you know and possibly stop you. But I'm, I'm more inclined these days to point it out as a place where work needs to be done or a focus needs to be um, placed on. And I often then take it and connect it to something that is missing prior to that moment. But I mean, you know, what kind of blew a lot of the sort of myths away, like, you know, you, you can do this pose if you practice it every single day for the rest of your life. But actually, you know, if your femur bones or your, you know, your arms are a particular length or, you know, binding is right. not going to happen. So, I mean, yeah, we, we've got that sort of, in a way, those myths held us sort of in that way of teaching and practice. And then now we know better, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I um, mean, we see that, you know, there are other things that work other than, the person just not trying hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, like it could be, you know, the shape of their, you know, ball and socket joint in their hip that keeps them from doing lotus. And, you know, mm. I've definitely met mm. those people and I'm like, mm. 
If you've been doing this pretty much every day and prepping for this pretty much every day for the last 10 years and it hasn't changed, I think bone shape is probably high on the list of reasons why not. You know? <laughs> and, you know, your knees are turned, rotated in and that leads to that kind of, you know, adding on not just that they tried, but, you know, somebody would be like, oh, they didn't try hard enough or they didn't do it enough or whatever. But you yeah. look at how their bodies put together and, yeah. you know, yeah. you can see the signs. And that's what I mean. I think someone like yeah. yourself, you've been so instrumental in contributing to this this way of looking at bodies and individual practice. And, and so that, you know, I think is is so important. Um, but just lastly, what, what's your favorite yoga myth? Is there one one old chestnut that you think, uh, oh, my God, that's so funny. Like your knees are your ego. Wasn't that a thing once? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how widespread that was, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there, there's there's a number of them. I mean, you know, there's there's stuff that you know, like your knee should never go past your ankle. You know, there's there's stuff like that that it's not really based on any research to no. do with yoga. I. I mean, you know, it, I think a lot of the myths fall back into alignment cues that have been um, established over many years. But, you know, the way I say it is, you know, Iyengar made it to the West first and most, um, I don't know, prolifically had an impact on the West and how they perceive yoga practice. Um, and I don't, I, I'm not, I don't generally think of that as a bad thing um but you know the westernization kind of started there and the sense of you know applying anatomy you know x y and z type of coordinates you know forward backward sideways and twisting you know like these areas of you know joints have to be you know placed over one another in order for um there to be stability or good function or something these are these are old myths that are not really they're not true in a dynamic body they may be true in a static body at times but particularly in like anatomical position you know somebody just standing with their palms facing forward but you know all bets are off when you lay down on your back or you go upside down or you know you get into a warrior posture you know i, I mean the knee over the ankle one is classic it, you know it comes from some research that was done they were looking at you know people squatting with weight and, you know, you, you, you get exactly what you would expect, you know, uh, the further back your knee is, the more force generated in the hip joint, the more forward your knee is, the more the force goes into your knee and less in the hip, but, and? So you've got, <laughs> you've got a yoga cue that you can send to room 101, never to be seen again. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> something that you don't say anymore. Something that I don't say anymore. Yeah, or yeah, some or some something you, you think shouldn't be said anymore. I mean, I I don't know if there's any one thing you know, and and any of those things may have a place at a particular time. So sure. it's not that anything can be taken off the table, as as much as you want to make this controversial as possible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think 
you know, I think after people come out of 101, you know, they, they should continually question why they're saying what they're saying and whether it is actually true in their experience, both as a practitioner and from teaching multiple students. That's all. Just, just keep asking the question. Yeah, that's great. So just before we finish, because I, I, the hour is nearly up, it's flown past. I mean, yoga land or whatever you want to call it, the yoga world as it is now, what, what, what's your take on it? Where are we? Where's, what, what level, what, what point in the experiment are we? <laughs> um, I think we're still adolescent, <laughs> to put it into those terms, um, with good. older siblings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It's been a little strange because, of course, the last two years with COVID is kind of like this big interruption in the experiment. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't see any particular problem. Of course, you know, we don't know where it's going. You know, it's like, you know, there's the back and forth around, you know, superficial versus deep you know, whether that's, you know, people talk about social media and, you know, the presentation of bodies and postures and shapes on, you know, Instagram or Facebook or wherever, you mm. know, versus, you know, doing the real practice, you know, and I just kind of see it all on a continuum. I, at least I try to. <laughs> Wise. Well, we will, we'll have to check back in 20 years and talk about yes. where we're at in the yoga experiment because yeah what well, i'll be 80 i think god jeez anyway what have you got coming up that i can tell my listeners about and i know you're coming back to the uk which is very exciting yes um tell us about coming, that yeah i'm coming to the uk for the month of july i'm teaching in aberdeen glasgow and london always exciting I, i've i've been going to the uk since 2001 was my first trip so you're practically one of us now i i get by yeah in the Say, uk without <laughs> being a without being a horrible american all the time yeah favorite swear word english swear word bollocks good nice well um, i think that's a good point to end it's been great talking to you so informative and a real pleasure thank you um thank you so much thanks for listening if you like what you heard feel free to tell your friends and join us again next time in the yoga room <laughs>